Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Backup, W. Curtis Preston, who is a storage backup and recovery expert and has written four books on the topic and is currently working in the data protection space for Druva, where he serves as the chief technology evangelist. He also is a well-known and highly regarded podcaster, where he hosts Restore It All for Backup Central and Druva's No Hardware Required. Today, we'll be discussing the role of backup and recovery systems play in a holistic cybersecurity strategy and how the cloud has transformed this landscape and how it is a part of a resilience-based approach towards cyber risk management. Curtis, thank you for joining us on the show today. Happy to be here. Nice intro. I like that. (laughs) Curtis, just last month, we had Don Marie Hutchinson on the show, one of the world's top CISOs, and she advocates transforming cybersecurity into a practice that is more focused on resilience and the outcomes that resilience can enable and leaving behind aspects associated with typical approaches where it's prevent everything 100% of the time. And instead, is my business sturdy enough to continue forward after an incident? As a security practitioner, I always struggled with the idea of where does backup really fit? It is a critical piece for business continuity and resumption, and it does fall under the umbrella of the CIA triad, yet Mm -hmm. I've seen it as an outlier for a lot of security practitioners because they say, and I've heard people say this, well, that's really infrastructure's challenge. Like That's their bag. What has been your experience? Well, I I think backup is an outlier of everything in IT. Um, you know, nobody wants to claim it, right? The infrastructure folks, although they clearly understand that it is part of the infrastructure, nobody wants to do that job. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that cybersecurity folks might um, have sort of the same opinion as like, they don't want to touch it. The, The reality, however, is that it is your last line of defense for many things that might happen to your company some of them cyber, some of them natural, some of them unnatural, some of them just, you know, stupid user mistakes, right? Or stupid admin mistakes. And so, you know, a, a, a good backup and recovery system and a disaster recovery system is crucial for any organization of any size. I, I have many stories from my career where companies literally cease to exist because they didn't have that, right? The reality is that backup and recovery and disaster recovery are the ultimate line of defense and that it's a crucial element of any uh, company, any organization. Uh, I have many stories throughout my career, some of which are decades old, some of which happened in the last few years of companies that ceased to exist because they didn't have a good uh, recovery system. Yeah. The the most recent one that I can think of uh, where, where, a, where a company literally ceased to exist was a cloud-based company, uh, ironically named Codespaces. 
and they, they were a SaaS service, uh, a safe space to store your code. And they were, they were stored entirely in AWS. They had a backup system, but they didn't employ the, the basic concept that we call the 321 rule. Uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit, but basically they, they had all their backups all in one basket. They had their company, all their infrastructure in the same AWS account, all their backups in the same AWS account, and a, a cyber attack took them out. Um, basically, it was, it was you know, what we would now call a ransomware demand. And they, um, they said, you know, give, give us a million dollars or we're going to do damage to your company. They took some steps to try to lock the hacker out of the account. And the result was he just deleted their account. And they ceased to exist at that moment because all the backups were inside the account that the hacker deleted. That was around what, 2015 or something? I recall that occurred. Yeah, it was somewhere it was in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, it, it literally, I mean, you know, the company was gone. And, um, I, you know, going back to the, the, the worst ones that I remember were back from 9-11. There were several companies who used the other tower as their hot site, right? So they were replicating between the two towers, but they didn't have, again, nothing was offsite. And so just like code spaces, when the uh, towers fell, their entire, there were entire companies that ceased to exist at that moment because they didn't have a decent uh, disaster recovery system. The lack of the decent recovery system to me has the smell of challenges that security practitioners have in terms of getting the right staffing, the right tooling, where the challenge is quite similar, right? They may say, oh, well, here's the risk. Here's what we've got. We need this level of investment. And for whatever reason, the business doesn't see it as a priority and thus it's not necessary to make that investment in process or technology. Yeah, agreed. The, the logic and discussion are opt, uh, often quite uh, similar between the two uh, disciplines. The one difference, one advantage that the cyber folks have is that people actually go to college to become cyber practitioners. No one goes to college to become a backup practitioner, right? Uh, so we have the same challenges that you have with the additional challenge of nobody wants to run the system, right? So that's a big challenge. What is the predominant method that organizations that are doing this well, what are they doing to get that funding, get that support, to make the appropriate business case as to why something like this needs to be in place. Because I'll tell you, one conversation I had with my board of directors many companies ago was exactly around disaster recovery and BCP. And it was mm -hmm. twofold. One is we had never executed a full-blown DR test. And second was that our backup infrastructure was nowhere near ready to even allow us to test. And we ended up asking for close to $2 million to get this done. But honestly, the only reason it happened, it wasn't because we created this compelling case, me and the CIO, and we went to them and just blew their socks off with how important this was. It was because the government was breathing down our necks saying, you guys got to get this done. You've promised it for five years. And he and I had inherited this wonderful program and we had no other choice. What do the better teams 
the better orgs that are more prepared, what are they doing to get that focus, get that funding? Well, there's sort of two questions there, and that is, how do you get an organization that isn't concerned to be concerned? That's one question. And then once you're, once everyone's equally concerned, then what do you do? So let me talk about the first one. And, and I would say that, you know, it's, it's sort of sad to say this, but predominantly it's a fear based point, right? That you need to be justifiably concerned that something catastrophic can happen to your company. Historically, what we would talk about is disasters. We would talk about floods or, or you know i live i live in san diego we would talk about earthquakes i used to live in florida we would talk about hurricanes and what would often happen would be people would say well the odds of that happening are relatively small depending on where they were uh, another thing that would happen would say well if that thing that you just described happens i will probably be dead and i won't care so it was hard to move them to the point of caring Ransomware seems to be great motivator because as we're seeing, the the odds that your company will be infected with ransomware are virtually 100%, right? Um, and so if you're going to be infected, if you're most likely going to be infected, you know that you've got to have an, the ability to respond to that event. Right. And so so that has helped a lot in these discussions, both in a good backup system and a good DR system. As far as the second part of your question about uh, what are the companies doing? And it'll sound a little self-serving when I say it. But, you know, for what it's worth, I've been in this industry for 30 years uh, and I felt the same way before I joined Druva. And that is the companies that are doing DR right today. Most of them are doing it in the cloud. You know, creating a, an alternate data center, a physical data center, or paying a company whose job it is to make that data center available to you in time of disaster, that is definitely the old way. It, it is the backup tape version of DR. We have, for the most part, move off of tape from a backup and recovery and disaster recovery perspective. And we've also moved off of doing this physically because dr uh is the killer app for the cloud what you need in a in a disaster recovery which of course is is a subset of a of a ransomware recovery you need a crap ton of infrastructure immediately and you don't want to pay for it until you ha- actually have that need and then once you're done with that need you don't want to pay for it anymore that is a poster child for the cloud, right? You can create your configuration. You can automate the creation of that configuration. You can automate the recovery all, and I would say only in the cloud, right? Yeah, from so, an architectural point of view, it's it's another type of hyperscaling for an immediate need, right? That, absolutely. The difference being that you've got the data elsewhere. Ransomware being top of mind, given so many of these attacks that we're seeing, are you finding bridges being built between infrastructure, backup professionals, and the security teams in terms of finding common cause here? Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I joined the industry back in 93, 
Uh, I honestly, I saw the, you know, we had the information security department, right? I saw that department as almost my enemy because the, all they were, the way I saw it as a new IT person, all they were doing was trying to make my job hard. I was, I don't know, you know, how long anyone's listening here, but back then we had this thing called RSH, right? Which was an incredibly insecure way to, um, to run a command from one server onto another server. And that was the only way I could get my backups done. And they really did not like that. <laughs> they were constantly shutting down essentially my ability to do my job. Back oh, yeah. then, I saw them as the enemy. Today, I think a modern practitioner, certainly myself and others that I work with, both the, uh, the data protection team and the data security folks they have a like you could you could do a Venn diagram of the things they're worried about, and it would be not quite a circle, but it there would be a lot of overlap, right? And so I think that again, going back to your earlier question, the people that are doing this correctly are definitely walking hand in hand with the cyber security folks. Curtis, you mentioned earlier the best practice of, or the rule of three, two, one, what does that mean yeah. and how is that applied? Yeah. So it is, um, as someone who's been doing backups a long time, what I would say is this is the thing that, that decides that something is a backup or not. Let me explain what, what an example of something somebody might consider a backup that isn't a backup. If you take a file that you're working on and you do a save as and you just save it as a different name, uh, and it's right next to the file you are working on. Or you do a copy in, in your, your file explorer, and you just make a copy of it. That's not a backup, right? That is, I would call it a convenience copy. So what turns it into a backup? And that is the three, two, one rule. So one is we're going to have at least three versions of the thing that we're backing up. We're going to have it on two different types of media Generally, what this is about, this is about putting on two different risk profiles, right? So uh, you're going to have it on, on a laptop and a, another hard drive. You're going to have it on a laptop and a tape drive. You're going to have it on your iPhone and the cloud. It's two different risk profiles. And then one of those copies, this is the one in the 321, it needs to be somewhere your data is not, right? We used to say it needs to be off-site. Nowadays, I just say it needs to be somewhere else. Going back to that company, Codespaces, they had the three. The three is good. I'm sure they had many versions of their data, but they, they stored it all in the exact same place. So it had the exact same risk profile. So somebody that could damage their account could also damage their backups. And then, of course, the one, they didn't have the one. So what they could have done, they could have stored the backups in a different region in a different account with a different management system, right? Again, a different risk setup. And then also, of course, storing it in a different region uh, to protect the data. Another recent, uh, there, there were some companies that were really damaged. There was a big fire, uh, cloud fire in France, OVH, back, I believe this was two years ago. The really sad story is that some of their customers had paid for their backup service. And their backup service didn't follow the three, two, one rule. Why do I say that? Because they had a separate server. They, they said, they said this weird thing in the, in the backup, in the description of the product. 
They said the backup, it will be stored separately or it's some weird phrase that I would not use. What they meant was it's in a server over in the corner. And so when the entire building went up in flames, so did their backups. And there's a, there is a, um, I don't know what the French equivalent of a class action lawsuit, I don't know if they have that term, but there is a multi-company uh, lawsuit going on with, with OVH. So that's what the 321 rule is, just three copies of the data, two different media, and one of them needs to be somewhere else. So this reminds me of, of a situation when I, I used to run distributed systems for a large biotech, and we had just acquired a company in Eastern Asia, small company. And I remember meeting with the head of infrastructure, who was also the admin, who was also the head of IT, who's also the help desk person. You can kind of mm -hmm. imagine what this poor person's workload was like. And as part of our M&A onboarding, we would always try to suss out like what technologies in place, where are we going to need to make additional investment? My jaw dropped when he described to me the method for their offsite backup storage. And it went something like this. LTO tapes that I put in my backpack and I take home and I put them in my closet. No joke. It was like, that's the process. Now yeah. they were doing it because of cost considerations and whatnot. That was obviously not a acceptable method moving forward, given that they're now part of this much bigger organization. Right. But your story at, about- At least he had it off site. At least he had it off site. Exactly. Which it's like, he's not right, but he's not wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I saw companies that stored their backup tapes in a box on top of the server that they were backing up. And that was yeah. the only copy, right? That sounds so. kind of like what I might be doing at home with certain things. So <laughs> I, I get it. I, I completely yeah. get it. Well, one of the things you had mentioned, this idea of the Venn diagram, the overlap with cybersecurity, the fact that ultimately we're looking at reducing negative business impact. There's very similar goals. Some of the measurements might even be similar. In the backup mm -hmm. world, how is the likelihood determined in terms of like, is there like a best practice model where somebody says, I believe that there is a X percentage chance that we'll encounter data corruption in production, or there is a X percentage chance that because the cyber people weren't able to react quickly enough, the ransomware will blow away half of our fleet. Are there mm -hmm. similar calculations? Because interestingly enough, in, in cyber, there's not a lot. And I always believe that it's great to learn from other disciplines in technology to see what can we apply and use for the betterment of the practice. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of that calculation going on. Uh, it's mainly because backup and DR, it's, it's essentially the last line of defense. They simply, they don't, they just know that they need to be able to prepare for the scenario if that happens. Right. And they know that they're designing to a certain what we call recovery time objective and recovery point objective. So they've told upper management that they can restore the entire data center or the entire computing environment in X number of hours or days uh, and that they can 
They can restore it to within X number of hours of whatever that event is. The recovery part of a cyber recovery, it's essentially the same once you've resolved the cyber issue, right? The, the restore part is, is pretty similar to a restore after a disaster. So they're not too concerned with what's the possibility of it happening. Uh, they're mainly concerned with the the cost of what the downtime would be and the cost of, you know, if we're down for a day, that's going to cost us a million dollars. And if we lose <clears throat> a day's worth of information, that's going to cost us a million dollars. Those are the numbers that they use to justify the the cost of the system. So it sounds like there is a combination of opportunity cost, some soft dollars that are going in there, some real hard dollars if it's impacting something in production. Yeah, just to just to confirm yeah. there, if you if you lost a day's worth of transactions, right? So one one is the opportunity cost of a of a day of downtime. But if you also lost a day's worth of transaction, you've literally lost sales, right? So if you if you're if you're Amazon and you had a day of transactions and and then you lost all of that, you just literally lost that money because you have no idea who ordered what or where it's supposed to go, right? So that, so those are two different calculations. One is more of an opportunity cost, and one is more a direct revenue loss. Yeah, actually, that's a very important distinction that you're making there. In the minds of cyber professionals, uh, many that I've spoken to that are much more holistic in their thinking, they very much include aspects of the the recovery planning and look to partner with specialists like yourself and, and their peers. From your experiences, what are the things that cyber professionals that maybe don't have an infrastructure background have never loaded or unloaded a backup tape in their in their life, but have a charge of being responsible for the triad: confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Yeah, understood. What are they not asking backup professionals so, about their program? That's a great question. It was actually where I was kind of hoping we would head because you need to do two things. One is you need to make sure that the the person or persons in charge of the backup and disaster recovery system see you as an ally, right? Because you're going to come in there and you're going to stomp all over their stuff, right? You're going to tell them 10 things they're doing wrong and they have to fix them now. So you got to solve that first. You got to make sure that they understand that, that we're on the same page here. We're on the same team. We all want to protect the company's data. So then the next thing that, that you and they need to understand is that the current state-of-the-art ransomware attacks are directly targeting the backup system. They're targeting it for two reasons. One is if they can basically disable the backup system by encrypting the backups or by just deleting the backups, they take a really valuable tool off the table for the organization that, that they're trying to attack, uh, making it a higher possibility that they would pay the ransom. The second reason they're attacking the backup system is for the purposes of exfiltration. And because the backup system is a single repository of all the stuff they would like to steal. So if they can circumvent the security of the backup system, the backup system goes from being their worst enemy to being their best friend. 
for these two reasons, they're directly targeting the backup systems. So we need to all be on the same page that that is what's happening or could be happening to, to your backup system. And then you need to do things like make sure that the backup system is on the front end of the cyber defense plan, right? Meaning when it's time to update patches, the backup system gets it first, not last or never. The, the uh, login uh, authentication and authorization system for the backup system needs to be completely separate from the entire environment. This is part of that 321 idea, right? Don't have the backup admin login just be the same login that they use in LDAP or, or anything like that, right? The Active Directory, it's, I don't know why LDAP came up there. The, the same login that they would use in, wow. in Active Directory. It used Directory. to be LDAP, I mean, before yeah. they yeah, well, I've, been around, I've been around a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it needs to be a separate username authentication system, right? You also need to make sure that the backup data is not visible as files to the backup system. And this is the hardest one to grasp for many people. The default installation of most backup software is to install it on a, you know, a Windows server. And then there's a drive, the F drive. And then the F drive has a directory called F colon backslash backups. And that's where the backups go. And they look like a bunch of files in there. Don't do that. There are advanced ways to buy third-party storage devices that have proprietary ways of communicating between the two so that if someone were able to successfully attack your backup server, they wouldn't be able to see your files, your backups as files, which then helps them to be protected from both exfiltration and encryption and deletion. That latter one is probably the most complicated one, but I think the most important one. And then I, I will just put on the end of that, all of that is done for you if you use a service provider like Druva, right? Instead of you having to worry about all of the security of all of that, all these servers on, on prem, all of that stuff is automatically done because it's already a separate authentication authorization system. The data is already being stored in the cloud in our account, not your account. So that stuff's already done for you if you use a service provider, a, a SaaS-based data protection system. But if you have an on-prem system, which many, if not most people still have, you have to make sure you do all of that. Otherwise, your backup system is just going to be the, the, you know, the other thing that happens in a ransomware attack. These are all great points. And I think the one part that you've hit on a couple of times, and I think it's really important to emphasize, is that the backup teams, the backup professionals, those that have responsibility for this are 100% on the exact same side as the cybersecurity professional. And ultimately, they're all looking to get to the same place, which is protect the data, make sure the business is up and running, keeping commitments to customers and making sure that any kind of backup that does occur is an authorized backup and not what we would call a unauthorized or data exfil event. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, that exfil event could be a restore. It could right? be. It, it could be, it could mask, it could be masked as a restore. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate all of your insights. If somebody wants to check out your podcast, what would be the easiest way for them to find you? 
So just go to your favorite, you know, podcatcher and type in restore it all as three different words and you should find me no problem. Uh, also, I wanted to mention that the latest book that I wrote, O'Reilly's Modern Data Protection, if you want a, a free copy of that, you can get that by going to druva.com slash ebook. Thank you, Curtis, for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of your expertise. Anytime. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2023.